The following case involves graphic descriptions of violence and sexual acts against children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. This is our very first episode of the brand spanking new 2020 year. I am so excited to be back recording with you guys. I can't even tell you. We took a little bit of a break so that we could celebrate the holidays with our families and we just want to wish everyone out there happy holidays, happy new year. We hope everyone had a safe and crime-free holiday. Darcy is still studying for comp, so she is not back on the show yet, so I'm going to be doing this episode solo. But I'm going to start it out with some fun stuff. I found this article today, and it really made me laugh. So this article has been all over the internet, and I have heard multiple people talking about it under various circumstances, both at work and in my social life. But this one I found on HollywoodGossip.com, and this article has been on probably a dozen different websites until this point, but it's Florida couple arrested for selling golden tickets to heaven. Jesus blamed. (laughs) This article... I mean, I'm telling you, Tito and Amanda Watts, a Florida couple pictured, were recently arrested for selling several hundred golden tickets to heaven for $99.99 a pop. So $99.99 a pop. As you might have discerned, the items were later discovered to be fraudulent. No kidding. The duo who sold their divine product on the street told the buyers the tickets were made of solid gold and guaranteed the purchaser a spot in heaven. Yes, simply present the golden ticket at the pearly gates and you're good to go. How you would take said ticket with you, we have no clue, but this wasn't how Tito and Amanda Watts crossed the line from ridiculousness into illegality. People can sell tickets to heaven, a Jacksonville police spokesman said, but the Watts misrepresented their product. The tickets were just wood sprayed with gold paint and the words ticket to heaven, admit one were written in marker. (laughs) You can't sell something as gold when it's not, a spokesman said, and that's what the Watts were doing when they crossed the line into doing something illegal. You learn something every day, police say. When they arrested the Florida duo, they also confiscated about $10,000 in cash, five crack pipes, and a baby alligator. Tito Watts, who was clearly 100% of sound mind, said in a statement, I don't care what the police say. The tickets are solid gold. It ain't cut up two by fours I spray painted gold. Well, that clears that up. He then continued, and it was Jesus who gave them to me behind the KFC and said to sell them so I could get some money to go to outer space. Unquote. Then he said, quote, I met an alien named Stevie who said if I got the cash together, he'd take me and my wife on his flying saucer to his planet that's made entirely of crack cocaine. You can smoke all the crack cocaine there you want, totally free. So try to send an innocent man to jail and see what happens. You should arrest Jesus because he's the one that gave me the golden tickets and said to sell them. I'm willing to wear a wire and set Jesus up, the man said. 
Good to know, Tito. His wife, Amanda Watts, said in her own statement, we just wanted to leave Earth and go to space and smoke rock cocaine. I didn't do nothing. Tito sold the golden tickets to heaven. I just watched. There you have it. More profound words that have likely never been spoken. So interesting. I mean, really, only in Florida would you find some crazy stuff like this. Anyway... The next article we're going to talk about is on a little bit more of a serious note, but it comes in as very relevant in light of recent events that we've talked about on other podcasts. And I found this article on Yahoo News, and it's called Boy Kidnapped in 1964 Found Through Ancestry Sites. And this article is actually written by Michael Tarm. A Michigan man recently identified as the newborn baby snatched from his mother in 1964 by someone posing as a maternity ward nurse was found through commercial ancestry websites after the man or child of his submitted DNA to the sites to learn about their family tree. Recent media reports have said that the now 55-year-old man living in rural Michigan was the two-day-old child of Chester and Dora Fronzak, abducted April 27, 1964, from a Chicago hospital. Those reports have not provided details about how he was located other than to say that the DNA was involved. But genealogist Cece Moore revealed in a phone interview that she and an adopted son of the Franzaks, Paul Franzak, submitted DNA from one of the kidnapped boy's close relatives to the ancestry sites in 2014 in what they described as a genetic fishing expedition. The DNA was submitted to Ancestry.com, 23andMe.com, MyHeritage.com, and FamilyTreeDNA.com, which combined have around 30 million DNA records. After Moore and Paul Franzak submitted the DNA, all they could do was wait and hope for a long-shot occurrence that the kidnapped boy, who was now an adult, or one of his offspring would submit DNA to the Ancestry site. They finally got a notification last year through one of the sites that there was a match. The notification included identifiers and ways to communicate with those who had submitted the match DNA. Citing concerns about infringing on the privacy of the man and the Franzak family, people that were representing the sites declined to offer more key details, including the man's name and where he lives in the state of Michigan. But Dora Franzak was 28 when her newborn son was abducted. She is now in her 80s and still lives in the Chicago area. The most important thing is that he and his mother have a reunion, say the people that were initially looking to find this little boy who is now an adult. See, people following this case can't say why a reunion hasn't happened until now, and they would also not say who submitted the DNA that proved the Michigan man was the kidnapped boy, but they did say that the person wasn't forced to submit the DNA to any legal or criminal proceedings. They say that their motivation for sending in the DNA was the motivation that most people have to use that DNA to find family members who are curious about ancestry. An FBI statement issued this week confirmed the investigation remains open and agents continue to pursue all leads. But the statement stopped short of confirming the reports that this Michigan man was the child abducted. The news and media stations did not name the man or where he lived in Michigan, again stating those privacy concerns. 
For years looking into this case, people that are following it believe the boy was kidnapped by someone who intended to raise him or sell him to someone who wanted to raise him. The kidnapper took the baby from the hospital where Dora Franzak had given birth April 1964. Interestingly enough, in 1966, a boy was found abandoned in New Jersey, and law enforcement officials said at the time he had ears shaped like those of the baby kidnapped in Chicago. The Franzaks believed him to be their long lost child, and they officially adopted him and named him Paul Franzak. This was also the name given to the newborn that was kidnapped before he was kidnapped. Genetic tests that were not available in the 60s revealed in 2013 that the boy found in New Jersey was not, in fact, their biological son. This case just continues to unfold with so many interesting little details. I love it. Hopefully they'll reunite this child and his mother very soon. I am actually going to jump right into the episode for today, and we're going to talk about Wesley Allen Dodd on the show today. And I know in the past we had spoken about doing shows that were related to the hometowns that we come from, and Wesley Allen Dodd is actually from my home state of Washington. Wesley Allen Dodd was born in a small town of Toppenish, Washington, July 3rd, 1961, to parents Jim and Carol. Now, Toppenish is a very small town. It was incorporated in 1907, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, it is near the city of Yakima and is in Yakima County, which is eastern Washington. The town is really small. It's approximately 8,949 residents as of 2010, and it's like a whole different state in this area. This is also a town that is located in the Yakima Indian Reservation. It calls itself the town of murals for more than 75 murals on local buildings, and these murals depict historical events that happened in the area from 1840 to 1940 and began being painted starting in 1989. Now, the Yakima Indian tribe was a name for the Native Americans that meant protruded or stuck out, referring to a landslide in the area at the time. Another theory claims that the word comes from people of the trail from foot of hills. Historically, this area had railroads as their big business, and the area is not really known for a whole lot, except maybe that Selena's older brother was born there. The town is only a few square miles, and it is pretty small. Now, back to Dodd's story. Wesley was the oldest of three kids and claimed to never have suffered any kind of abuse when he was growing up. But he also says that he never heard the words, I love you, said by anyone in his family. During imprisonment, he wrote in a diary about physical and emotional abuse of his father and neglect, saying that he was often neglected in favor of his younger brother. He also claimed to have witnessed a number of violent fights between his parents During his high school years, he was pretty much an outcast who wasn't welcome in any social circles, which is not surprising for a lot of serial killers. But 
Dodd claims his attraction to boys started at about the age of nine when he noticed that he was attracted to small children. Now, at that time, Dodd is known to have been attractive and bright as a teen, although he was, as I said earlier, an outcast. On his 15th birthday, his father attempted suicide after an argument with Dodd's mother. Now, at this time, as I mentioned earlier, Dodd was known to have been somewhat attractive and he was personable and trustworthy, which allowed him to work as a camp counselor and a babysitter. At 13 years old is when Dodd's first reported criminal behavior started, when he started hanging out and showing his junk to kids in the neighborhood, so he was exposing himself at age 13. His dad later said that he knew about the stuff but ignored it as pretty much harmless, and his son was otherwise a good kid with no drugs and drinking or smoking, so it wasn't really a priority to shut this down. But by the time he got into high school, he had escalated into molesting younger cousins and kids he babysat, including kids belonging to the woman that his father dated. At 15, Dodd was arrested the first time for indecent exposure. Surprisingly, police released him, telling his parents to get him counseling. In August 1981, Dodd tried to kidnap two little girls, but they ended up getting away and going to the police. No action was taken in this case, and Dodd joined the Navy the next month, which pretty much ensured that he was going to get some discipline. Next, he ended up going to a submarine base in Bangor, Washington, where he started abusing kids on base. He tried inviting some to hotel rooms to play strip poker and got himself arrested. At this time, though, police finally started to take notice of him. Despite confessing his plans to Chester the molester, these kids, the police were like, hmm, stay out of trouble, okay? And no charges were filed against Dodd at that time. He then exposed himself again and got discharged from the Navy. And after that, he spent 19 days in jail and got counseling. So clearly his MO at that period of time was just exposing himself and it was going to escalate further though. In May 1984, Dodd did it again and was arrested for molesting a 10-year-old boy. Surprisingly though, I mean, I think the police really had a whole different viewpoint back then because he got a suspended sentence. Essentially, Dodd was getting a slap on the wrist for a long history of criminal behavior that seemed to be escalating quickly. According to interviews with Dodd, he planned his life around finding kids to target and molest, and he moved around whenever possible in different lines of work so that he could have the time to do this. He worked in fast food restaurants and repeatedly molested preschool-aged kids of a neighbor. But this person actually refused to press charges against Dodd because she said she did not want to have her kids traumatized. In 1987, Dodd tried to lure a boy into a vacant building. That little boy thankfully, got away and went and told police. Prosecutors by that point knew about Dodd and knew about his history, and they wanted five years in prison. However, Dodd only got probation and required mental health treatment or exposed himself in that particular instance. Next, 
Dodd quit treatment after probation was complete and got the heck out of there heading to Vancouver, Washington. This is in the southern tip of Washington state near the Oregon border. At that point in time, Dodd started working as a shipping clerk and he started scouting out areas for molesting and finding boys. In the fall of 1989, Dodd discovers that he likes David Douglas Park in Vancouver. This place is super wooded with lots of secluded trails and places to hide. Over the next couple of the years, Dodd gets caught and arrested multiple times in and around that location of David Douglas Park. But he gets minimum jail sentences and therapy as punishment to despite the fact that he is a repeat offender. At that point in time, there were around 50 victims, all below the age of 12. Some were as young as two, and most of these poor victims were boys. So Dodd obviously had a preference. But as we know, sicko child molesters typically don't stop at exposing and molesting. They usually almost always go further and further until they get caught, and Dodd was no exception. He was planning, scheming, and thinking about murder this whole time. Psychiatrists are now saying he was a classic sexual psychopath. But September 4th, 1989, Dodd goes to his favorite park in David Douglas Park in Vancouver and sits and waits. By then, Dodd is 28 years old, And he is primed and ready to start committing murder. Just as a little background here, David Douglas Park is an 88-acre community park, which is the largest in the city of Vancouver. This is a central gathering spot for sports, community events, and it's really wooded with lots of isolated spots for someone to be a creeper. Meanwhile, Dodd gets settled into one of these spots and starts watching. He has a fish fillet knife, some shoelaces, I mean, who does that? And he starts scoping out the area for young boys to grab and kill. Unfortunately, 11-year-old Cole and 10-year-old William, two brothers, stumble across his path. He then lures them into a secluded spot where he strips them, ties them both to a tree, and forces sex acts on these two boys. When he was satisfied that he had sexually molested them sufficiently, he stabbed both numerous times and took off. Now, sadly enough, little Cole died on the scene and poor William died on the way to the hospital in the ambulance. But now Dodd is gleeful that he got away with murder and he starts collecting articles about his terrible acts and putting them into a scrapbook. October 29th, 1989, Dodd drives to Portland, Oregon, which is just a quick jaunt down the road from where he was, and he finds four-year-old Lee Azalee and his nine-year-old brother Justin at a park. He sees little Lee playing alone and realizes that his brother Justin left without him. He grabs this little boy and promises to drive him home. He lures Lee into his car and back to his apartment in Vancouver, completely unnoticed by anyone in the area. 
Then he makes this poor little boy get undressed and starts molesting him while taking pictures the whole time. While tied to Dodd's bed, he kept this little boy overnight, continuing to molest him and jotting down details in his disgusting diary. In the morning, he strangled this little boy and hung him in the closet with rope as a trophy. He later said he had not planned to kill, but he had to keep this little boy from telling. But then realizing he could not hang on to this body without it rotting and starting to smell and creating more issues, he took the body, put it into trash bags, and threw it in the bushes near Vancouver Lake. He then buried his clothes and the little boy's clothes in a trash barrel and kept the boy's underwear as a trophy. This little boy was discovered the next day, which prompted a massive manhunt. During this time, Dodd kept a super low profile and hid out in his apartment, writing down plans the whole time for future abductions. He also was creating a homemade torture rack for his next unfortunate victim. December 13th, 1989, Dodd is on the prowl again, and he tries to grab six-year-old Jack Kirk II from a bathroom in Camas, Washington, which is a medium-sized town near Vancouver. He's in a theater and he sees this little boy and he tries to snatch him. But fortunately, though, this little boy was smart and well-trained by his parents and very intuitive. So during that whole time, he knows something is wrong and he starts making a lot of noise and fighting and screaming and crying against Dodd, who's just trying to grab him and sneak away. Dodd tries to carry this little boy across the theater lobby, but employees think he looks really suspicious because this kid keeps struggling. Then Dodd decides, hey, it's not worth it. He drops the kid and tries to run away. But this is the point in the story where we get a huge hurrah because the boyfriend of the little boy's mom comes out of the restroom and hears what happens and asks for directions and a description of Dodd and where did this guy go? He then takes off after Dodd. It's At this point in the story, it's not sure whether this man is in a car or on foot, I like to kind of imagine him running after Dodd's car on foot, propelled by the fire of his anger. But unlucky for Dodd, his car breaks down a little ways from the theater. This was probably a beater car since Chester the molester probably couldn't get a good job with his criminal background. But in any case, the man, William Ray Graves, is a super chill dude. And he plays it cool and offers to help Dodd. And Dodd is all like, sure, bro, I'll take your help. Graves then puts him in a headlock and grabs him, taking him back to the theater where staff can call police. So he just jumped on this guy right away. And right about then, local police are putting the pieces together. They call the Portland police and start to ask about the Lee Azaley case. And he is taken in and questioned in Camas, then Vancouver, Washington, over the next three days. And during that time, Dodd cracks and confesses to murdering Lee Cole 
and William. Next, though, Vancouver police get a search warrant for his house, and once there, they find the homemade torture rack, newspaper clippings of Dodd's gruesome crimes, as well as Lee's underwear, and a photo album of Lee's molestation and murder, with the whole thing in pictures. This is just absolutely atrocious. They also see a huge stack of newspaper clippings and magazine things of little kids, which was probably a catalyst for Dodd's addiction. And then they find Dodd's disgusting diary. I mean, what kind of an idiot leaves something like that laying around? But every single disgusting and awful detail of Dodd's crimes was written down in his diaries. Dodd is immediately then charged with first-degree murder for the three murders he confessed to, as well as the attempting attempted kidnapping. He initially pled not guilty and then changed his pleading to guilty. The trial happened in 1989-1990, where excerpts of his disgusting journals were read out loud, as well as the pictures of Lee were shown to jury members. No defense witnesses were called, and there was no evidence presented on his behalf. At first, the defense counsel suggested legal insanity, but then they didn't use that defense, saying it was pointless for Dodd to speak and claimed the system had failed him repeatedly. Dodd said he wanted to die by hanging and was willing to die to bring peace to victims' families. In 1990, Dodd was sentenced to death in Washington state. He refused to appeal his case on the death sentence and insisted he would kill again if he was allowed and given the opportunity. During the trial, he generously wrote a pedophile's guide on how parents could protect their kids from child molesters. This is absolutely terrifying. But at the time, people who were convicted and sentenced to death could actually choose the method for dying. They could either choose lethal injection or hanging. Dodd said he preferred to hang like his victim, Lee. This was actually the first death by that method since 1965 when there was a dual hanging in Kansas. The hanging itself was witnessed by 12 members of media and family members. The final meal for Dodd was broiled salmon and fried potatoes, and Dodd was hanged at 12.05 a.m. January 5th, 1993 less than four years after his trial. This was surprisingly fast for the time, and considering that it normally takes decades to get that through now, an autopsy later revealed that his death was quick and within about two to three minutes, which doesn't seem fair considering how long he tortured some of his victims. There was no broken neck, as was usual by hangings, but reports suggested that he was suffocated or strangled by the rope. His body was then cremated and the ashes were sent to his family. 
Dodd's death was interesting, though, because it created a lot of controversy because this was a hanging death. Although doctors said it was likely that it was not very painful, the American Civil Liberties Union was not on board with this method of death, and they really felt that this was a violation of the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment, which has long been an argument used by people that are against the death penalty. They initially tried to block the execution, more specifically saying that the Constitution prohibits federal government from imposing excessive bail, excessive fines, or cruel and unusual punishment. There were a lot of people, though, that felt this lawsuit wasted a ton of American taxpayer money, and it went all the way to the Washington State Supreme Court, where it died because Dodd chose hanging himself. Media provided a whole lot of attention for this, but ultimately Dodd the molester seemed satisfied with his fate, and it seemed like he died pretty docilely. He tried to help a little bit by creating frameworks and literature to help people recognize when their children were being groomed by molesters in the neighborhood. But this was a case where a lot was learned and used as teaching tools with regard to the Eighth Amendment, court system failures, and mental health issues. It's interesting as well to look at the FBI profile on this because November 1st, 1989, the FBI had actually created a profile for Dodd. It said that he was likely 25 to 35, kicked out of the military, a loner who probably kept photos of his victims and a diary of his offenses. They also thought that he would probably be clipping articles and had child porn. They also claim that he would probably be interested in boys because he saw girls as defective. Sources outside of this case estimate Dodd molested 50 to 100 kids and had many failed attempts at molestation, kidnapping, and murder. Now, I found a pretty interesting article in time.com about Dodd, and it was basically, here's the article, Lessons of the Gruesome Case Behind One of America's Last Legal Executions by Hanging. This article was written by Olivia B. Waxman, January 5th, 2018. It says, Friday marks 25 years since Washington State hanged admitted child molester Wesley Allen Dodd for kidnapping, rape, and murder of three small boys. Though more than two decades have passed, the Grizzly case is still a lesson in the nature of crime and punishment in the U.S. Dodd, who had been molested himself as a child and had a long criminal history, said that he started the 1989 spree that led to his eventual arrest, stalking children armed with shoelaces to tie up victims and a knife, because in his words, he didn't have a TV and was getting bored. In 1993, as the execution date approached, Time described one of his most gruesome killings. Quote, Dodd found a four-year-old boy playing alone in an elementary school playground. He coaxed Lee Izaley home with him to play some games. When we got there, he said, I told him he had to be real quiet because my neighbor lady didn't like kids, Dodd said. He then stripped off Lee Azalea's clothes and tied the boy to the bed and began taking Polaroid pictures as he molested the child. He later mounted the photos in a four-inch by six-inch pink photo album labeled Family Memories. He paused at one point to make an entry in his diary, writing, 6.30 p.m. will probably wait until morning to kill him. 
That way his body will still be fairly fresh for experiments after work. Dodd began strangling the boy at 5.30 a.m. and revived the child twice before finally killing him and hanging the body in a closet and burning the boy's clothing, except for his Ghostbusters underpants, which he kept as a trophy. In addition to the brutal nature of Jeffrey Allen Dodd's crimes, part of what got the case so much attention is that Dodd appeared to like the attention that came with his arrest. He actually kept news clippings of the crime and watched himself on TV religiously, as well as keeping a very detailed diary. Dodd also surprised many people by speaking so candidly to the police. Each time I entered treatment, he said, I continued to molest children, he wrote in a 1991 court affidavit that was quoted by Time magazine. He said, I liked molesting children and did what I had to do to avoid jail time so I could continue molesting. After his incarceration, he even wrote a coloring book for parents and children on how to avoid child molesters. Most serial killers don't go to such great lengths to produce a document like that, authorities say. Dodd specifically requested to be hanged because that's how his last victim died. January 5, 1993 was the date for the hanging and was the first legal execution of this method since 1965. Dodd's request for hanging was unusual given that this particular method of death had fallen entirely into disuse by that point. Public hangings outside courthouses would result in botched executions that created a public discomfort with brutal execution. So many states historically moved to control the process in a more efficient manner and to make it less public, more sanitary, and more medical. For many observers, though, the idea of giving Dodd the death he requested did not sit well. National attention to Dodd's execution due to the gruesome nature of his crimes drove conversations about how society addressed sex offenders. Prior to his run-ins with the law, many people felt that his run-ins with the law had taken him off the street, but not long enough, and his crimes had not been taken seriously enough. The prospect of what amounts to a glamorous public suicide was vastly more appealing than a life spent alone in a cell crushed by boredom and without the least chance of freedom, Time noted. For Dodd, perhaps justice would have been better served by denying him death and letting him wait for a very long time for death to come to him. Since Dodd's execution, two other hangings have taken place in the U.S., but other methods of execution have largely replaced it. Moreover, capital punishment has disappeared in many places through the U.S. due to extreme protests by a lot of different groups. And now, 25 years later, something else remains notable about the case. In addition to being the first execution by hanging in nearly three decades, the Dodd case stands out in an extreme moment in a very particular time period marked by heightened awareness of sexual violence. This is a very, very interesting case, and not just because of the method of death that he chose. The Jeffrey Ellen Dodd case is interesting because he had been arrested so many times. And courts knew this man was a danger to society, and yet he still kept getting released from prison. He fell through the cracks, essentially, and was not given the treatment that he needed. And 
the other thing is, who really knows if treatment really would have helped this man in any significant way? He seemed like he was on a crash course for murder and torture of young children. Hopefully the families of these young children that Dodd horribly murdered and tortured have found some measure of release in the death of Jeffrey Allen Dodd. This is the point in the podcast where we say goodbye for now. So long, farewell, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please keep them to yourself. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Send us an email, folks. We're at the Podcast at gmail.com. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye!